live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We've had a lovely break, and now the listeners are keen to get back in. We left them in the middle of a series on printing. We are up to now part four, which is the 19th and the 20th centuries. Yes, that's right. Although, before we start, I'd like to wish your family a richas yomim after the sudden passing of your father-in-law. And as discussed, we would like to dedicate this podcast, Le'ilui Nishmasai, to Mordechai Dov ben Rabishoi Yitzchok. I remember being in yeshiva with him in Rupzikoshlevsky's a number of years ago. Although perhaps you could tell us something about your father-in-law. He actually, a few weeks ago, he told me that he enjoyed the podcast and he said he had fond memories of you in yeshiva. He said you were very clever. Oh, okay. uh, so <laughs> well, that's misdirection. <laughs> well, he was a very special man. It was a tragic, sudden death that uh, definitely no one was prepared for. It was a severe brain hemorrhage. And uh, what can I say? He was the ultimate family man. Nothing gave him more joy than being with his children. He did everything for his children. They felt it. They knew it. And it's created a void that we couldn't have imagined at such an early age, he was only 54. I guess the thing that sticks out most, which was his sterling midas and character, I, I, in eight years, which I'd been married for, I never ever saw him get angry or frustrated. Well. Uh, in fact, he, he had this motto, don't worry, you'll be okay, Hashem is in charge. And I mean, anyone who knew him heard that a lot and I mean, to think, additionally, I, I, I don't think I ever heard him speak negatively about anyone. I used to, uh, he was a killer man. He was involved in many affairs in the killer, and he... Must have been a Talmud Chacham as well. Incredible Talmud Chacham. He, he knew everything. Like, he was the... I just, my wife mentioned to me something I didn't know, because when I got smicha and... I mean, it was before this as well, but he, my, my wife's been asking him Shilas her whole life. He knew everything. If she ever asked him something, you know, so like a basic question, what do I do with this milky knife that I put in the right. meaty pot or something? Then he whispered in his in her ear, please don't ask me in front of Mena. You know, <laughs> he didn't want to... Undermine. Yeah, but well. he was just the ultimate thoughtful, kind person and... I used to I used to prod him, like ask him about things in town. He just he used to shrug off. He never wanted to speak negatively about anyone. And as you say, just an immense appreciation of learning and um, very very missed. Hard to imagine life without him. And uh, yeah, it should be a schuss if anyone gets inspired by this podcast. Thank you for doing it in his uh, memory. Yep. And uh, Amen. Oh, man. All right, back okay. to the podcast. Thank you. Sorry Fine. if I was rambling a bit. I nope, was unprepared. No, 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 no. I think uh, that was very appropriate. We are going to deal with three different pieces tonight involving various attempts and schemes to print the Talmud, 
all for different reasons and all with very different levels of success. We'll start with the, I guess, the most famous, which is in a way sitting on everyone's bookshelf, and that is the famous Vilna Schuss of the Widow and Brothers Rom, produced in 1886, of which most of our Gomorrahs are copies. In 1835, Menachem Rom and his partner decide to print a brand new Schuss, which aroused fierce opposition from the Slavita printing house, uh, run by the very well-known Shapiro brothers, who had been granted a 25-year monopoly uh, because publishing the Talmud was very expensive. So the Slavita printers got a copyright in 1807 for their edition, and many Rabbonim, including the Balatanya, signed a decree almost prohibiting anybody else from printing the Gomorrah for... 25 years. 1835 is more than 25 years, no? Yes, but it was only 21 years from the time the final part of the edition had been printed, and also much of the stock remained unsold, and they therefore claimed breach of rights. It became a, a strong fight between Hasidim defending the Shapiros, Misnagdim defending the Rom printers, uh, which included uh, Rubikiva Ege and Hassam Sofa, and eventually a compromise was reached. The Rom printing house was allowed to print a new edition on condition that it purchased all the remaining stock of the Slavita edition. What was so revolutionary about the Vilna Shas? What did it bring? We'll get there. But because of this argument that had taken place, it, it was exploited by the Maskilim, who tried to discredit religious books, Jewish books, in the eyes of the Russian government and said that, you know, they engender ignorance and disobedience. And unfortunately, at that point, things took a turn for the worse because a non-Jewish bookbinder hanged himself in the Slavita printing shop itself in 1835, and the deceased's family accused the printers of murdering the employee to prevent him from reporting to the authorities all the svarim that had been printed without the censor's approval. And then you had the local priests who got involved against the Shapiro brothers, and the result was pretty bad. It was a, a showcase trial and the exile and imprisonment of the Shapiro brothers. And then on a wider scale, Tsar Nicholas I ordered the destruction of thousands of Svarim. He closed down almost all the Jewish printing shops in the Russian Empire. There were two main ones that survived, one in Vilna and one in Zhitomir. And for 5,000 rubles, the Rom family uh, got the right to continue as the Hebrew printers of Vilna, but they had other problems. Um, the Polish government forbade the imports of books from Lithuania. And then the government censors, who were often converts from Judaism, uh, caused major headaches. Um, but the chief editor, uh, Schmal Fagenson, worked to overcome all these obstacles. Um, at that time, uh, their censor was a convert by the name of Yaakov Brafman. And he gave him a regular, quote-unquote, salary, uh, in exchange for which Brafham would actually examine, but he would pass, basically, all the books intended for publication before they were printed. What happened to the Shapiros? So, in 1856, they were released from prison, 
uh, 20 years later, and they moved their printing operation to Jitomir, and their publishing house took off again. Their publications, in fact, are sought after by a lot of people, particularly in the Hasidic world, because of the uh, the holiness, or saintliness, I guess you could say, of the Shapiro brothers and their Yechus, their lineage. And now back in the with the Vilna Shas in 1854, the first printing was completed. In 1860, the oldest brother passed away, which left behind his widow and six children. And the company was now headed by her with her two brothers-in-law. And this is how it got its famous name, the Widow and Brothers Rom. Um, and the apex of their printing career took place with the Vilnachas of 1880. The family initially decided that they would only go ahead if they had a thousand subscribers. To give you an idea of how popular it was, 10,000 people committed to buy the Shas volume by volume as it came off the presses. It was probably the finest Shas ever produced. There were 22,000 copies of the first volume sold in 1880, this is. And yes, there was a decline over the years as the next six years as it got printed. But there were still 13,000 when the final, final volume was printed. It had 103 new commentaries and it was leather bound, 37 volumes. And Faganson put some notable extras in the footnotes tombstone inscriptions of some of the Rom family members. The graves have now been since destroyed. He also told a fascinating story of how the writings of Rabbeinu Hananel were added. Rabbeinu Hananel is the first systematic commentary on the Talmud. He's uh, almost 100 years earlier than Rashi, although he only wrote on half of Shas on Moed Noshim and Nazikin. So the Rom printers had copied a manuscript of Rabbeinu Hananel on the tractate Shabbos, but they didn't have it on the rest of Moed. And the only place to find it was the Vatican archives. But their library was closed for four months for summer vacation. And if they have a few months delay in Vilna, it could sabotage the whole schedule because um, they're fully dependent on their subscribers to finance the printing. Somehow, they got to Rufol Notter Rabinowitz in Munich, who contacted a German politician and a German professor. They had connections to two cardinals in Rome. And the way Faganson put it, these two cardinals opened the doors of the library, and all they had to do was pay the salary of the library guard. <laughs> and he writes that the only explanation that he can come up with as to why the church would actively help Jews print the Talmud is that Rabbeinu Hananel's merit, his great merit, helped him um, so that the light of his commentary could shine from the darkness to illuminate the Talmud. And in fact, he thanks the cardinals by name at the end of, um, of, of the Masechta. Incredible. Do you reckon uh, we can bribe our way in to find the Menorah? You can get into the Vatican Library without bribing anybody if you uh, It's the vault, that's right. the problem. Yeah, that's possible, <laughs> yes. Now, eventually, the Rom printing house was forced into decline by the authorities, but at a meeting 
of Jewish leaders and Rabbonim in St. Petersburg in the early 20th century, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who heard about this, was dismayed that the Rom house could close down, and he persuaded Baron David Ginsburg to invest 75,000 rubles into the business, and therefore they continued printing really until the Russians brought things to an end in 1940, and the building still stands in Vilna today. And what we have to understand is that the format they created is responsible for all the Gomorrahs that you learn from today. And on the front page of all these Gomorrahs, you will find the words widow and brothers rom. Uh, any format, you know, the Oizvahodor, the Telmanshas, Friedman. The Art Scroll Shas. You know something? Actually not. Neither the Hebrew nor the English have it and there must be a reason i don't know what it is but there has to be a reason i'm sure art scroll will contact us for, right, for comments to tell us yes so you mentioned that it's a widow rom who ran it was it common for women to be involved in printing of books especially in those days well in fact you can go back even further and find women who were involved both in fact in the Svardi and ashkenazi world uh, judith rosanis from lemberg lvov is the most famous probably about a hundred years earlier than we're talking there is, however, what I could only call an endearing piece from an amazing nine-year-old girl in Germany. Her name is Ayn Lamate. I don't know if it's L or Ella. And she's the daughter of Moshe ben Avram Avinu, who was a convert to Judaism. And he worked in setting type, printing Jewish books in various places, mostly in Germany. And he employed his children to help him in the task of typesetting. So El and her brother worked on setting the type of the Siddur Drush Moshe in 1696. And she writes a poem of her own at the end. And she writes that, you know, I set these Yiddish letters with my own hand. I am Ella, daughter of Moshe. Um, my years number no more than nine. I'm the only girl of six children. And if you find any mistakes, please remember it was set by a child. <laughs> That's the irony in that, that uh, she speaks so eloquently and maturely and right. she types at it. But no, if there's mistakes, I'm just a kid. <laughs> right. OK. Yes. But uh, she's allowed. Yeah. And then a few years later, in another safer sh that she helped typeset, the famous Berman Schuss, which a court Jew, Socher Berman Siegel of Halberstadt, funded. And in fact, he gave away half of the 5,000 copies to needy scholars throughout Europe. So at the end of the final Masechta, Masechtas Nidosh, she signs that it's by the hand of the faithful typesetter Yisrael ben Reb Moshe and of his unmarried sister, Ella, in the year Nekeva Tesovev Gever, uh, which literally means a woman shall go after a man. And when you add up the letters which are in large type within that posuk, within the verse that she quotes, you come up with the year 459, in other words, 5,459, which is 1699. And the posuk she quotes is from Yirmiyahu, where it says that uh, God has created something new on earth. A woman shall go after a man, which actually means that in messianic times it will be the color uh, the nation of Israel, who will look for the chosen for God. 
And she is clearly unmarried at the time. And as Ellie Ganauer writes, perhaps she thought that her circumstances necessitated a similar approach to finding a suitable Hosn of her reaching out to the world. Although we don't actually know what happened next. I mean, she was only 12 in 1699. Yes. Shouldn't have been that desperate yet. And those days, uh, right. not desperate, but a spinster already. unheard of. <laughs> Now, meanwhile, in Western Europe, a very unusual Talmud project was taking place. In 1842, Dr. Ephraim Moses Pinner, a student of Rabbi Yaakov Lissa, embarks on translating the entire Talmud into German to open the Talmud to Jews who could no longer read uh, Hebrew and Aramaic and to counter hostile non-Jewish misimpressions about the Talmud. Okay. But it was his supporters who were the most surprising, eye-opening, you could say. The most unexpected was the Tsar of Russia, who ordered a hundred copies. You have the King of Prussia, the King of Holland, who orders five copies, the King of Belgium, the King of Denmark, Duke of Sussex, Prince Metternich. All in all, you probably have over a thousand names of influence. Yet, with all of that, only one volume appeared, and that was the first Brachus. One second, you said the Tsar supported the printing of the Talmud? Yes. So, there's an article written by Adam Mintz, and he uh, suggests two reasons for this, because it is crazy. He says that the Tsar, first of all, was trying to turn the Jews away from their religious habits, which included uh, discouraging the use of Yiddish and uh, therefore encouraging the use of European languages like German. Also, because Nicholas I was a real anti-Semite, he'd commissioned a report to understand what's wrong with the Jews. And the report found that the Talmud was the cause of the refusal of Jews to assimilate into Russian society. Interesting. And Nicholas then felt that by exposing the Talmud, he would expose the Jews publicly, um, but to do so would require translating it into European languages to boost sales. So basically, the Tsar planned to use Pinner to get to the Jews, and Pinner planned to use the Tsar to fund his translation and hoped, I guess, that the Tsar would see positive side to Judaism. Okay. So now on the rabbinic side, one of the most influential rabbis of the early 19th century is the Chassam Sefer. And particularly, you know, about the sensitive issue of uh, secular languages, of engagement with the outside academic world. The Chassam Sefer spoke a fluent German and was keenly involved in the struggles with reform. And it was as the site just now. It was. That's true. Many people went to Bratislava, to Preshburg for the outside, as they do every year now, because even Kehanim can get to near enough to the Keva. So Pinner tries to get a Haskoman approbation from the Chassam Sofa. And the Chassam Sofa says to him, but you can't translate the Talmud on your own. It's ridiculous. I'm not prepared to give you a Haskoma. So Pinner says to him, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. I'm going to have a team. I'm just the editor. And one of the rabbis who would be translating it is Rabnosn Adler, who at the time... Chief rabbi of Britain. Uh, right. So at the time, he was the rabbi of Hanover in Germany. He would eventually become the chief rabbi of Britain, as you yeah. say. And he said that Rabbi Adler is going to translate Erevin and Yevomus. So the Hassam Sofer said, fine. He wrote him Haskoma. But Pinner had been playing sort of loose with the truth. He used Ravadla's name to get this Haskoma, and then he used the Hassam Sofer's Haskoma to get more Haskomas, because Rabbi Adler denied any involvement at all. 
And when Hassam Saifa found out, he retracts his Haskama. And more than that, when he found out that Pinner was still using the Haskama and still trying to print, he issued a sort of a public declaration, a kol kore, asking rabbis to ban the printing, buying and reading of the work. And he basically says, you know, if he uh, does so, then great. But if he continues with this, he's sort of going to end up uh, in a pretty lousy place in the um, future world. Now, no one to date has actually located the original text of the approbation. In his retraction, Hassam Sofer says that the text was published in a Hamburg newspaper, but it hasn't been found. The retraction we do have with a couple of sort of misprints, but we do have it. You mentioned earlier that no further volumes were published. I'm guessing this is because of the retraction of the Hassam Sofer. Just sales um, plummeted. Well, okay, that definitely had a strong effect, and that is what a lot of people feel, and it definitely was a reason. But the Hassam Sofer had made his negative views known seven years before Pinner published the first volume, and the volume does contain approbations from several other rabbis. Uh, perhaps an equal reason is that this first volume contains a full-page dedication to Tsar Nicholas I, who is described as a great monarch, rich in deeds, uh, high-minded, the protector of every pure aspiration. And bearing in mind, he is the one who initiated the mandatory Cantonist 25-year conscriptions into the Russian army. And during his 30-year reign, he created so many decrees that it was one of the darkest eras in Russian Jewish history. And this is something that Jews in Western Europe would have been aware of. So they might have been reluctant to buy books which glorified him. Even though they're well aware of the reason it was written. Yes, although it's possible that Pinner himself felt that if he dedicated it with such lyrical words to the Tsar's government or the Tsar himself, that he might change their views through the translation. It's similar. There was a guy called Max Lilienthal, who was a German Jew and at one stage was the chief promoter of the Russian government program to establish a modern Jewish school system, but eventually he came to realize the government's real intentions and he fled to America. That might not have been the case initially with Pinner. He might only have come to this realization late in the day. Right. So you're saying this proposal went nowhere? No, because no, the Tsar eventually retracted his investment. There is, however, a review of the volume written by a non-Jew, and I guess in many ways it's an indication of how you should and should not use the art scroll, Gomorrah, or any translation, what they can and can't do. He writes, every subject that the human mind can grapple with may be treated in here in the Talmud. A thorough knowledge of the original text cannot be acquired without very long and careful study. But if every word cannot be so translated as entirely and completely as to represent the original, if it still be necessary to consult the original in order to fully comprehend this immense compilation, it is at least very possible to give a correct outline of the whole. So you get some ideas what he's saying from the translation, but you still need to learn it right. in its original. Okay, on to our third and most recent and most powerful printing. In some Jewish libraries, you can find a volume 
possibly even an entire set of a Talmud, which constitutes an extraordinary edition, because on the opening page of each volume are sketches of a concentration camp and barbed wire. And the story behind it starts in 1945. As World War II drew to a close, survivors of the Nazi death camps try to rebuild their lives and they end up in DP, displaced person camps in Austria and Germany, some of which were housed in the very concentration camps which the Nazis had built. And conditions initially were pretty bad. In fact, on the 29th of September, over three months, more than that, after the end of the war, U.S. President Truman wrote a scathing letter to Eisenhower, who was in charge of German troops in occupied Germany. He describes the horrific conditions that the uh, Jews were still living in. He quotes from a report on the conditions in the G DP camps that Truman had commissioned. And he says that as matters now stand, we appear to be treating the Jews as the Nazis treated them, except that we do not exterminate them. They are in concentration camps in large numbers under military guard, and one is led to wonder whether the German people seeing this are not supposing that we are following or at least condoning Nazi policy. So it was pretty bad. So individual officers may have been friendly, but most of the officer corps by 1946 identified with the vanquished Germans who themselves obviously wanted to forget the past to rebuild their nation, although this time without Jews. And it was convenient and given the Cold War even desirable for the American occupiers to go for quick reconstruction and basically, you know, argue against special treatment for Jews. And it was obvious that anti-Semitism in post-war Germany was very much alive. If Hitler had returned, the majority would have probably embraced him. In fact, in surveys carried out in Germany in 1950, I saw this recently, when the Germans were asked to rank in order the people who had suffered most during the Second World War, the Jews were always listed at the bottom of the list. So, well, who, yeah. who, Who's at the top of the list? They themselves, they themselves German the people. Citizens. You have no idea how much we suffered when the Russians came. I mean, they mm. did, but, you know, in comparison. Right. So, you know, there's despair about the future of Europe's Jews and immigration doors are shut. You know, Palestine was locked in British hands. Eventually, though, there's some changes in Jewish life in the DP camps. The American joint, the Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, helped distribute food and medical supplies. And they set up schools, helped, it must be said, by the American army and by very remarkable and determined rabbis who'd survived the Holocaust, who were going to rebuild Jewish life one way or another. The huge problem that they encountered, which limited Jewish education and uh, religious services, was a complete dearth of Jewish books, of Sifrei Torah, of Tefillin. Allied officials found some in Nazi warehouses, but Jewish survivors still did not have a lot of the basic Jewish books. Enter into this scene Rubavrom Kalmanovitz, who was the head of the Miri Shiva in New York and a very important figure in the Vatatsala Rescue Committee. In 1939, he had moved with his yeshiva, the Mir Yeshiva, to Vilna. And from there, he made his way to the USA. And he was able to finance the Mir Yeshiva that ended up in Japan or under Japanese control, even after the USA and Japan were at war. 
He even managed to send them dozens of copies of tractates of Talmud so the students could continue studying when they were in Shanghai. After the war, he is still persisting in his rescue efforts, and in 1945, he involves John Hildring and Lucius Clay by basically walking into the Civilian Affairs Division headquarters daily for three months to explore every single possibility to send religious articles to Jewish DPs in Germany. It's an odd bit odd that there wasn't a worldwide effort. We're talking about five years after the war, the atrocities were already known, the survivors were when you call. say worldwide, the only place that had both the the items themselves and the financial means was the United States. Palestine, the Jews there were, you know, living from hand to mouth. Britain had gone through the blitz and there was no global Jewish wealth yeah, at all. And how, you know, how much Torah was there at the time that they could, you know, send out volumes of shas. I will tell you that Shlomo Baumgarten writes a letter when he was in Bergen Belsen to Jews in England and says, fast skip a meal if you have to in order to be able to send religious items to fill in to the camp here in Bergen-Belsen because the Jews are starving for it and they don't have it. You know, it was unfortunately a very real issue, a very real problem. And Hildring, in fact, later wrote, All I know is that Rabbi Kalmanovitz is a patient and appreciative old patriarch, and I can think of no assistance I gave anyone in Washington that gave me more satisfaction than the very little help I gave to the old rabbi. And helping Rabbi Kalmanovitz on the ground in Europe was the uh, chief rabbi of the US zone in Europe, Rabbi Shmuel Abersnig, who was a survivor. He'd been a chaplain in the Lithuanian army. He'd survived the ghetto in Kovno and survived Dachau. And between them, they decided that they needed to get the Talmud to these survivors. It was the lifeblood of Jewish learning. And it would signal that life could be rebuilt religiously. And they are told that General Joseph McNaney was the commander of American forces in Europe, and he held the keys to any large requests. So they decided to approach his advisor for Jewish affairs, a guy called Philip Bernstein, who was American, an American reform rabbi. And although Rabbi Bernstein obviously came from a very different background, his mother had come from Lithuania, and he had a deep attachment to Jewish life. And they explained their proposal to print the whole of the Talmud on German soil. And Bernstein became a crucial supporter of the project. He arranged the meeting with the general. And at the meeting, they asked, would the army make a basically a major effort in rebuilding the culture which the Nazis had tried to obliterate, um, vindicating the finest principles for which American democracy stands to allow the Talmud to be published in Germany under the auspices of the American Army of Occupation. It must have been quite special for them to hear that instead of insisting on housing and luxuries, you know, the people of the book wanted their book yep. back. And yep. Yep. Just like the Kloisenberger when General Eisenhower visited Feldafing, uh, one of the DP camps on Yom Kippur. What do you need? Is it I need Arab Aminim. It was five days before Sukkot. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Very different. Very different priorities. And the general felt that printing sets of Talmud would be a powerful symbol of the triumph of Jewish life helped by American forces in the land where it had been so nearly wiped out. So he signed an agreement with the American Joint 
Act and with the Rabbinical Council of the US Zone in Germany to print 50 copies of the Talmud into 16 volume sets. But they immediately ran into obstacles. First of all, there were some officials who objected to the expense. But the hardest task was to find a full set of Talmud anywhere in Germany. For 10, 12 years, it had been hunted down. As Hashkocha luck, well, some would say, would have it, some volumes turned up in a cemetery in Munich, where on Kristallnacht the uh, Nazis had basically binned them. And the Rabbonim started with these volumes and they found another six. So that was the first problem they had. Then there was the labor involved in printing. Each copy needed, you know, over a thousand zinc plates, which had to be set and proofread. But they were determined. So they begin in 47. And uh, David Davidson recalls how he would confiscate printing plants that had belonged to the Nazi party and he would look for supplies of newsprint of ink. He would salvage bombed out presses. He even swapped uh, wheels of Bavarian cheese for British zone zinc, which they needed for making the photographic plates. And the project became known as the Survivor's Talmud. Although by 1950, when the project was completed, Jews were starting to rebuild all over the world, even though they were often still bereft of uh, vital svarim. So the sets in their entirety at that time were shipped out to wherever Holocaust survivors from DP camps were settling. It made its way to Algeria, to Italy, to Hungary, to Antwerp, to uh, Greece, to Sweden. And in some places, they were the only full sets of shas at the time. What they look like, these sets? Well, from the outside, I've actually seen at one volume, they look like any other. You've seen an original? Yeah, yes. Um, I actually tried to put in a bid for a full set in the Kedem auction house a few years ago. But then you thought you'd keep your house instead. No, actually it wasn't that expensive, but I wasn't set up properly. I only saw it uh, the day before and you need 24 hours to get the whole thing set up. So I regretted it. It went for a few thousand dollars, but not, you know, not for a hundred thousand dollars. It was uh, relatively uh, purchasable. Sur surprising. People don't appreciate the value of such a thing what it represents yes so although I, it depends how many copies are still around that i don't know and it, that could be what many, if uh, there were only 50 made yeah but probably most of them are still around right um, so you know you know from the outside you can't tell anything but inside there's as i mentioned there's a well there's first there's a picture of eret israel and of a concentration camp surrounded by barbed wire fence with the words from bondage to freedom, from darkness to a great light, my favorite And it has a dedication to the United States Army saying, you know, that they played a major role in the rescue of the Jewish people from total annihilation. And they bore the major burden of sustaining the DPs. And it was published in the very land where a short while ago, everything Jewish and of Jewish inspiration was anathema. And this Talmud will remain a symbol of the indestructibility of the Torah, not just the eternity of Torah, but the eternal will of the Jewish people to belong to that terror despite all that they had been through it. Uh, Beautiful. Yeah. I will end with a short story, a very short story that I came across in a 
essay in Hebrew. An academic called Rees writes that when he was studying in Hebrew University in 1968, he needed to find books which were no longer in print. And he spent time perusing bookstores in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And he was told that near the large shul in Tel Aviv, in a sort of side alley, there was a store piled high with the hundreds, maybe thousands of secondhand books. But he was warned that the owner doesn't let anyone inside. He blocks the entrance and any potential customers have to tell him what they're looking for. And he would disappear into the book into, into, the, into the store and emerge with whatever book they'd asked for. And that's exactly what happens to him. He's refused entrance. He mentions two particularly difficult to find books. And within moments, he is holding both of them from the treasures within. And he writes this, he starts an essay with this, to point out that at that stage, the people most in charge of getting books into people's lives were not the writers, which was once the case, nor the printers, which was eventually the case in the you know 19th century that we've just seen, how many people signed up for the Vilna Chasse, but the booksellers themselves. <laughs> They're the ones who have the final word. Yeah. They put it, you know, display it on their shelves or not. Right. Beautiful. Next week, next week, we are going to be doing a special. I'm not sure if to say in honor of, in memory of the British Prime Minister, depends past, present, but we're going to be doing at least a one-off on the Jews and Britain's Prime Ministers, uh, having a look back into history at their relationship. Beautiful. Another timely topic, seeing after the last timely topic we did was when our Queen Elizabeth passed. Yes, that's correct. And that was very popular and people appreciated something timely. So we're looking forward to hear that. Thank you very much, Gamar Behersh. Good to hear you again. And thank you for dedicating this in memory of my late father-in-law. And looking forward to hear the special next week. And please do send in your reviews, your suggestions, your comments. We've been receiving so much feedback, especially over the Sukkos. And it's the feedback's coming from all over the world, from yep. the uh, the highest uh, intellectuals in Israel and America, all the way to the the laymen, the, and uh, it's all appreciated. And keep sending podcasts at jlead.org.uk. Thank you. <laughs>